Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, we're marching towards the end of, of you know this podcast and you know all the episodes that we've been talking about, all the events that we've been covering. We're getting towards the end here, so I'm glad that we're getting together uh, at least one more time uh, before we wrap things up. But uh, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here, Phil. I can't believe how long we've been doing this. On one hand, it feels like, oh, yeah, this is very familiar. On the other hand, it feels like we're just talking about starting this podcast. And here we are running, you know, coming to an end. And right when we're getting good too, the Ronda Rousey <laughs> era. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, this is going to be a fun one to talk about. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's the last time we get to talk about Ronda fighting in Strikeforce because <laughs> she's uh, this is this is the end of female fighters in Strikeforce is the second to last uh, a, a event that they put on. And, and so this the last card, for whatever reason, did not feature any female fighters. So this is it. We're kind of get to talk a lot about Ronda today and we'll talk a little bit more about her, I guess, or I guess I'm sure on uh, on the last couple of episodes. But. Yeah, this is it. So, uh, but let's welcome our, our listeners inside the Hexcon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until thir- 2013. And on the episode today, we are discussing Strike Force Rousey versus Kaufman, which took place on August 18, 2012, at the Valley View Casino Center in San Diego, California. In the main event, as you might have guessed, Rowdy Ronda Rousey would put her women's bantamweight title on the line in a bout with top challenger Sarah Kaufman. In the co-main event, former middleweight champ Ronaldo Jacare Souza would match up with Derek Brunson, Brunson excuse me, in a bout between 185-pound contenders. In a welterweight bout, Roger Bowling would look to use Tarek Safadine as a launching pad to start him. We would also see main card bouts between Ovin St. Prue and TJ Cook, as well as Lumumba Sayers and Anthony Lionheart-Smith. And then I want to add that we would also see Misha Tate in a preliminary card main event, so to speak, against Julie Kedzie uh, in a very anticipated scrap, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. But as we like to do, Let's discuss the fallout from the previous Strike Force event, which was Rockhold versus Kennedy. We had a new lightweight title challenger coming out of that one as Pat Healy had won a decision over Mizuto Hirota, earning the next shot at 155-pound champ Gilbert Melendez in the process. We'd also seen Lorenz Larkin make a successful middleweight debut in a, with a decision win over a gun-shy and not-so-ruthless Robbie Lawler. And Hodger Gracie had gotten back on track with a decision win against the Dean of Mean Keith Jardine in that man's retirement bout. It would end up being his retirement bout. Fans had also witnessed perhaps the most brutal knockout in Strike Force history as Nate the Great Marquardt had made the most of his welterweight debut with a highlight real KO, uppercut KO of Tyron, Tyron Woodley garnering himself the 170-pound title in the process. And I did want to mention, listeners, if you have not already, make sure you check out our most recent episode where I spoke with Marquardt. It was a, a great conversation. And I enjoyed that. I have to admit, Phil, I have not listened to this uh, interview you have with Nate the Great. Did you ask him what it felt like to be the original Jake Paul? And I, I'm not <laughs> being half. I'm being half serious here. I mean, did he feel like, hey, I knocked out Tyron Woodley ten years no. ago? What's <laughs> no. the big deal? <laughs> no, Jake Paul's name was not. I don't believe Jake Paul's <laughs> name was mentioned once during that. Nate is way too. I, have you ever have you ever spoken with him before? I don't think so. I don't. He, he's right got to be the most humble. I mean, he's very, very religious, very devout, very, very devout, very Christian. Uh, he's just super humble. There's just he was not gonna <laughs> he was not gonna uh-huh. boast about anything like that. We did talk about uh, what it felt like to land that shot. He actually said that he'd 
pulled the punch, the very, very last uppercut that he'd actually pulled it a little bit because he saw that that Woodley was going down. And so he actually said he pulled it back a little bit, said his coaches didn't believe him. Uh, I told him I believed him. I don't know that I do, (laughs) but he, he, I mean, he's, it just landed flush. And so he talked through that. He talked, we talked a lot about the strategy behind the fight and just kind of what he saw as he was, we, I try to do that with, with these fighter interviews, but I want to say this might out of all the fighter interviews that I've done, uh, for this show, I, this might have been the most where we where we got into strategy the most for a particular fight. I mean, he only had Mark, Nate only had two fights with Strikeforce that that one, and then he fought he defended the title in the main event on the very last card. So we didn't talk a lot. We didn't talk about that fight at all because uh, I a I haven't seen it before, and b uh, I want you know we were trying to cover that this particular card, but yeah, he talked a lot about the strategy and that punch. But no, I'm sorry, Jake Jake uh, Jake Paul did not come up at all during the conversation. <laughs> so good. All right, but in the main event of this card that we're talking about, Rockhold versus Kennedy, Luke Rockhold had defended his middleweight crown successfully in a very very gritty bout with Tim Kennedy. But that brings us to Rousey versus Kaufman. Ronda was clearly a star at this point, despite being so young in her career. She was only five and zero. Uh, but very beautiful with a, a beautiful with an attitude, I guess we'll say. I, I, you know, Josh, you and I kind of feel a little bit differently about Rhonda. I'm not a huge fan of her attitude. Um, she's made me dislike her, dislike her even more with her attitude towards uh, WWE fans. I, I'm just not a fan of. I, I I can get behind somebody who's cocky and arrogant. Guys like Chael Sonnen, like I I can get behind that. Uh, but you've got to show a proper amount of respect for the sport and for your opponents, and especially early on, Ronda, in my opinion. Did not really do that. I mean, the things that she would say about Misha Tate and the way that she just talked about just how great she was and all that stuff. I mean, she after this bout, she did talk about how much respect she has for Sarah Kaufman. But I, I just, yeah, I know you feel differently, Josh. So I'll let you, I'll let you be the apologist and 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 lift her up. But I, I'm just, I was never a big fan of Ronda Rousey. Be her game in the cage, yes. Her as a wrestler. Yes, like I, I like what she does, uh, how she performs, definitely, but just not really a huge fan of her persona. Well, I got news for you, Phil. Ronda Rousey doesn't care what you think. Oh, she does her. not. <laughs> I guarantee you. <laughs> and if she were you, she wouldn't like herself either. So it's it's not a big surprise. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of go up and down with Ronda. I think early on, I was a huge Ronda Rousey fan. Like, wow, she's amazing. She's arm barring everybody. She's doing it so quick. She's great, right? And then I think where I first turned on Ronda a little bit was when she refused to shake Misha Tate's hand in the rematch after tapping her out. Like, there was a very great pro wrestling thing to do. But in the UFC, or, um, yeah, in the UFC, it just sort of felt like, all right, that's really cruel. I mean, you just, like, broke this person's spirit, and you you got to do something to help them out. So I kind of turned on her there, but I think I'd like Ronda a lot more with 2020 hindsight. She had a very unique upbringing. Yes, I guess I'm going to be an apologist. I mean, her mother would wake her up in the middle of the night trying to armbar her. (laughs) Uh, She lost her father young. Uh, She has some trust issues. And these are not excuses. But when you have somebody who's been so singularly uh, pushed to be the most successful person they can be in one thing, you're going to get personality quirks. And I think that that's what she has. And I... 
I have seen her show a lot of respect. The thing is, she only respects the fighters who don't insult her. Yeah. Right? Like, if or, you don't, insult- or, or don't stand up to her. How about that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I kind of go back and forth. I don't like what she said about wrestling fans after they turned on her uh, when she was doing her first run. I think that that was immature. It's professional wrestling. And one of the things fans love to do is cheer and boo. And it changes overnight. So she should never take that too seriously. So I I was not a fan of that. But I do think Ronda, for a period of time, was the most dominant athlete in MMA history. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I always respect her. For that and and I feel different. Conor McGregor and I know we're not going to get into this too much and and whatever, but to me, Conor McGregor lost me forever in the Nate Diaz buildup because I thought he had some racist undertones there, and I just felt like it was really unfair, you know, referring to Nate being in a gang and flashing gang signs and then making animal balloons, you know, on the same weekend, like being a phony, and I felt Conor got too personal there. And I think Connor, you know, he's, he's, it's a different kind of, kind of banter he has with his opponents where he really goes personal, but, um, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, and I like Rhonda. The other part, I like Rhonda. She is a legit pro wrestling fan. She does love it. And I'll say it right now. She's the best, she's the best female professional wrestler there is. I mean, she's better than Charlotte. She's better than Becky. She's just so freaking athletic and so good. If she devoted her full time to this stuff, my goodness, you know. So anyway, yeah, I guess I'm an apologist, but that doesn't mean I don't dislike some of the things she's she's done in her life and her career. Yeah, that's fair. And I was the Connor thing, you know, when he started getting into, uh, you know, Habib's uh, religion and family. I agree with you. There's he's he has crossed the line. He's absolutely cross the line at the same time he's also at times shown a lot of respect for his opponents but i agree and he's gone he's definitely gone too far is this when he was talking about getting direct messages yeah yeah he he lost me (laughs) i actually watched that fight and he lost me after that like i was just like not cool like this is not acceptable so uh but anyways uh you know you, you make some good points and yeah i agree that ronda at one point she was the most dominant fighter I mean, just arm barring. She was just such a level above everybody else. I mean, you, when you have those like nine straight arm bar wins to open your career and, you know, almost all of them under a minute and, you know, 14 second finish, 16 second finish, you know, all these Sarah Kaufman was legit. I mean, legit, like one of the like probably top three at this point in the world and just getting just mauled in less than a minute. I, it's just, yeah. So I, uh, she was just a cut above. So we'll, we'll talk more about her, uh, in the build up to the bout, um, Rousey was being asked about other fights. I mean, that that's how much Kaufman was being overlooked. Uh, she was asked about hypothetical matchups with Gina Carano and Chris Cyborg. She said that she'd be happy to fight either one of them, but pre- preferred to fight Cyborg, who she called Cyroid after, uh, uh, I'm sure, more than once. But she strongly, strongly disliked, I pretty much hated her. Uh, she stated that Carano was, quote, a cool chick, end quote, uh, who she had a lot of respect for, but she did not feel that way about Cyborg at all. Unfortunately, as we know today, we never got to see Rousey Cyborg. They were just in different weight classes. And, uh, and I think I think we know what would have happened after seeing the Nunez fight. Yeah, yeah, so, I think Cyborg yeah. would have walked through her, but yeah. it's it's you know 
it's especially because the size difference, you know, I mean, cyborg would had to cut off an arm to make 135. I mean, she was having trouble. She was came in heavy for 145 at times. So regardless of, you know, she obviously had gotten popped for steroids and, and regardless of any, you know, whispers about that powering her career, she definitely was heavier than Rhonda. And so it's just one of those things that, uh, I guess, uh, God intended for that fight to never take place. <laughs> so, but anyways, uh, speaking of God, Dana White, it, the God of MMA in many ways, had also clearly softened his stance on women's MMA stating that if he was to promote one female fighter, it would be Rhonda. Uh, so obviously just seeing the package that she brought between her looks again, her attitude that we discussed, and then just her real life credentials in terms of, you know, being a, a bronze medalist in judo and everything else. Times were clearly a change in, and we were getting closer and closer to seeing females in the UFC. All right, but the uh, the co-main event bout between Jacare and Derek Brunson had actually been scheduled to take place five months earlier, but Brunson had failed an eye exam. Uh, turned out he couldn't see well enough, so he had LASIK surgery to correct uh, the eyesight, and now he was good to go. I also had LASIK surgery now 18 years ago, and it was awesome and i'm starting now just starting to feel like i need to go see the eye doctor again but lasik surgery was was has been very very good to me and apparently you're it was good to Derek Branson. Yeah. you're a brave man yeah it was it was actually it was kind of cool you see a lot of like stars and well again this is 18 years ago i'm sure the i'm sure the, the <laughs> it's advanced in terms of its uh you know professional whatever it's just how effective is all that stuff but uh, it wasn't that bad. It was actually kind of cool, so I, I enjoyed it. But yeah, it was. I was. It was a little nerve wracking. But I've had ba- bad eyesight since. I think I'd had glasses since it was either third grade or fifth grade. I, you know, I didn't. We couldn't. I was too young for contacts when I needed them to play sports, and so I had to wear glasses. We couldn't afford like the afford the sports goggles. It just. It was. It was always a big deal for me. And so being able to get it when I was twenty one and being able to play basketball without, you know feeling like I was blind and driving and all those things. It was, it was really good. So, well, I'm anyway. not sure not to be a spoiler, but I'm not sure Derek Brunson's surgery didn't, worked 100%. didn't work out here. <laughs> Definitely didn't work out here. All right. We'll get to that. Uh, but Jacques Ray, as I mentioned, a former champ was on the hunt, hunt to get his title back, which he'd lost to Luke Rockhold. Brunson for his part was hoping to play spoiler and earn a, earn a title shot for himself. Again, as we mentioned, we'd also see Misha Tate back. Uh, she'd be on this card and she'd be looking to make a statement and get another crack at Rousey continuing their blood feud in the process. Honestly, I'm really surprised that, and I, I'm disappointed that this bout was not on the main card. Uh, OSP cook and Sayers Smith both had their moments and they like the, I mean, the knockout in the OSP fight is just like, yeah, I'm glad I I'm glad and scared that I got to see that. And the finish of the Sayers Smith fight was just super smooth. They're both ended up being good fights. But the Misha Tate, Julie Kedzie fight, especially from a promoter standpoint, if you're trying to get back to Tate Rousey, why do you not put that fight on the main card for everybody to see? Like, I don't, I don't quite understand that. Do you think Ronda may have had like some <clears throat> Triple H veto power over Tate being uh, on the same card as her? Yeah. Like, maybe you don't think? I she's don't. Like, a, I, I don't hate think. Tate. She, yeah, no. I don't think that she has that. And B, I don't think she would exercise it. I mean, I know obviously she hates Misha Tate, so I guess maybe, but I, I yeah, I, I don't, I just don't even think Coker would, I don't think that would even come up, but so I doubt it. Um, but that said, I mean, you can make a case for the, Hey, they were trying to draw viewers to Showtime extreme or, you know, whatever that, that and so, yeah, you put Misha Tate in the main event on that. So, you know, I guess, I guess I could see that, but I just, it would have been, and I'm glad I watched it. I know you watched it as well. It was 
I think the best fight overnight overall of the night. So, you know, at least it's available, but yeah, it should have gotten more, more attention. So, but this brings us to the event itself. Strikeforce Rousey versus Kaufman took place on August 18, 2012, at the Valley View Casino Center in San Diego, California. The event drew a crowd of 3,500, so 3,502 fans specifically, or exactly, for a live gate of $145,510, which I think makes this a money-losing event once again. Uh, broadcasted on Showtime with Mara Ranallo, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich on the call, the final time that we'd see the three of them together. The event drew an average of 529,000 viewers. The peak was reached in the main event, hitting 676,000 viewers, which was good for sixth highest of all time for Strike Force on Showtime. So say what you want about Ronda Rousey, but she was definitely a draw. And that was something that uh, Dana White called out after this event. We'll talk more about that when we get there. A few notes to add here. Ironically, despite this being this event being headlined by Ronda Rousey and Sarah Kaufman mentioned this earlier, this would be the last Strike Force event to feature female fighters. Uh, they had two. They actually had three more events scheduled after this. This one, but two of them would be canceled, uh, and the last one would feature only male fighters. So this would be it, despite all the build and you know ladies under uh, main eventing both the undercard and or the preliminary card and the the main card. It that despite all of that, all the promotional dollars that went into it, this would be it. Uh, this would also be the last Strike Force event featuring Mora Ronaldo on commentary, as he would be absent from the final Strike Force event due to a private family matter. I don't have any insight on what that family matter was, but this would be it for Mara, unfortunately, with the last time we get to hear him. Uh, and then, despite publicly stating he was gone, or I'm sorry, done, excuse me, with Strike Force personally, UFC President Dana White sitting about five or six feet away from Scott Coker at Cage Side. So, kind of interesting to see his bald head. Uh, uh, sitting there when he said he was done with the promotion. But it tells me that uh, probably negotiations or things were already starting up for uh, the UFC to just absorb completely strike force and be the end of it. But that's just, you know, reading between the lines. All right, let's get to the undercard at 155 pounds. Bobby Green, who recently fought in the UFC uh, as we record this, defeated Matt, Ry Matt Ricehouse versus, or, I'm sorry, excuse me, defeated Matt Ricehouse via unanimous, unanimous decision at 145 pounds. Jermaine D. Randomy uh, defeated Hiroko Yamanaka via unanimous decision. And then at 185 pounds, Adlan Amagov defeated Keith Barry via TKO, come by way of leg kicks and leg kick and punches at 48 seconds of the first round. Josh, uh, did you get a chance to watch this one? Is this the one with the illegal uh, kick to the knee? Yeah, yeah I watched which, it. Although yeah. I don't know if I honestly I don't know if it was illegal or not. They were, uh, Frank and Pat were going back and forth on commentary discussing whether or not uh, it was illegal. It's one of those for listeners that don't know what we're talking about it's one of those kicks anderson silva used to use it john jones has utilized it a lot where you do that kind of down kick to the the opponent's leg i am not a fan of that kick either uh however at the same time i, I don't know that it should be made illegal i mean it's it's obviously something that you can defend against but uh you know on the on the flip side obviously there are rules to mma i mean no fish hooking no you know poking the eyes no you know knees to the shots to the groin those are all things that you can do in a street fight obviously so this is not a street fight so there is precedent for making things like that illegally but here we are 10 years later and it's still not illegal uh, but anyways in the fight amagov kicked barry in the knee and kind of a push kick uh to that knee which folded it both Frank and Pat said it either is or should be illegal. Uh, Amagov followed up by throwing punches, and and uh, referee Herb Beam was telling Barry to fight back. 
Uh, Barry started talking back to Dean and he stepped in to stop the fight and Barry got up immediately started protesting, but it was too late. Just a really weird ending. And you, they, they caught the whole exchange between Barry and Herb Dean on, on camera. Uh, really weird. And I think, I think Dean blew it. And I think he knew it. I, I think that, I think that his countenance showed that he was, he, you know, confirmed that he did not uh, do the right thing in this case. And, and I think that was, I think that was uh, clear. What did you think, Josh? Yeah, I thought it was ridiculous. I, I thought Herb Dean, who's I guess regarded as like one of the top two MMA referees, uh, yeah, I think he blew it. He didn't see it. Um, it's a tough thing because obviously, if you get if something illegal happens and the referee does not recognize it, you can't start saying, "Hey, stop it! I need a break." You have to keep defending yourself. So that's on him to keep fighting. And clearly, it didn't do the kind of damage that he, where he was incapable of fighting, it was just something that knocked him down and then he got hit. So I, I'm, I feel a little bit mixed, but at the end of the day, I think that Dean blew it. He should have noticed it. He should have, I don't know, give him some time, take a point away, something like that. Because as soon as that happened, he stopped fighting and then he got clobbered and then the fight is over and it's a crummy way to, to end the fight. Yeah, I, I agree. I just, I think Dean missed it and I think he knew it the way he was talking to Barry. I think he knew it, you know, this whole, like I was talking to you and, but you, it's not your job to talk back to me. You, you know, you, you like, why would you stop the fight? Because he started, unless he's telling you stop the fight or I'm hurt or something. I, I just, I, I didn't like it at all. And it was, is very weird. And yeah, so not good. All right, we get to the aforementioned Misha Tate versus Julie Kenzie uh, at 135 pounds. Tate defeated Kenzie via, or sorry, Kedzie. The, my stupid, this key thing keeps autocorrecting from Kedzie to Kenzie, so, which is really annoying. Um, Misha Tate defeated Julie Kedzie via submission come by way of armbar at 328 of the third round. Uh, I This was definitely, I'd read that this was the fight of the night, and I definitely agree that it was. These two ladies went right after it, throwing punches before Kedzie landed a nice left high kick to Tate's mouth, uh, which seemed to, to stun her a little bit. The former champ recovered, however, and things settled down. Really good performance from Kedzie in the opening round, who I scored the opening frame for, though Tate definitely had her moments. One of the reasons I love MMA is... Not because, like, oh, you see the winner and, you know, they're great and you see them challenge themselves. But the story within the fight, I like watching fighters adjust. Uh, I like watching fighters rally, come back, make changes. Because these fighters are so skilled and they're such a high level. It's these little things that make the difference between winning and losing. And Kenzie could have won this fight and she would have, like, changed the future of women's MMA. She hurt Misha Tate in this round early and she didn't jump on her. She kind of let her get back. She, she didn't pressure her. She continued the stand up, and Tate was able to kind of survive, even though Kedzie kind of beat her up the whole round. Um, I thought she made a mistake. I think you, you should have just tried to end it and she did it. Now, obviously she ran the risk of getting tired, blowing herself up or, going to the ground and Misha putting a submission hold on her still I think you got to jump did you feel that way did you feel as though she kind of let her off the herc in the first minute kids I mean Kenzie was 
clearly locked in and she showed it in the second round. I, like, like I said, I feel like she could have finished her, but Tate, I wouldn't say she was getting dominated, but Kenzie was definitely winning the fight as they hit the midway point. Uh, that is until Tate used her grappling. She got in a really good choke. Kenzie was able to survive, but it, clearly the tables had turned. Tate had now, now had pot top position. She dropped a couple solid elbows. Uh, more scrambling the two get back to their feet, but really great action. I mean, regardless of who you might have been pulling for or whatever, like you said, the the story of the fight. I, I agree with you. I, I like it when there's kind of a story within that, you know, within a fight. That's that's interesting. Makes it more interesting. And this one seemed to be Kedzie, obviously the lesser known, the more of the underdog, and she's just you know really she gets Tate in trouble. The you know recent title, former t- former title holder. And, you know, she's just looking really good. But the second round, things started to change. Maybe the, the cobwebs cobwebs had cleared. And second round, much better for Tate. And I gave her I gave it to her. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Pat Militech's analysis here. Misha Tate had a, a choke on. And she had it in seemingly pretty tight. But Pat sort of explained how it wasn't going to lead to a submission. He was really smart, sort of pointing out where her body was in relation to the choke. And she was sort of on the wrong side. And it was perfect timing because you're watching this and you're thinking, oh, Kenzie's going to tap. She doesn't. It felt like pro wrestling where they do the submission holds. They try to mimic MMA and it like goes on forever. And you're like, that would never last for real. No one is in that submission hold for that long. Um, but now you sort of see if they are in that hold for that long, here's why. She didn't have the right position. So this was, to me, a really good example of one of the things I loved about Strike Force was just the the smart color commentary and Pat Militech and... Frank Shamrock, and of course, Morrow could do any of those jobs. So I really like the commentary in this round. Ketsy started to lose some of her energy, and Tate was like, hey, I was in there with Ronda Rousey. I can do this. You know, you sort of felt the, the proverbial pendulum shift in this round. Yeah, and I think Tate stayed calm. Part of it, I think, was early on. I think she was just rocked and trying to recover, but she stayed really calm and po- poised and focused. And I think, like you said, I think Kedzie kind of started losing her energy and her focus a bit. She she paid for it. Uh, but again, she looked really good early on. She dropped Tate with a leg kick. Uh, to me, Tate, yes, she looked, as I said, patient. But also she looked, I, I felt like she was kind of kind of burnt a little bit. She she looked a little slow and a little tentative at times. And Kedzie then landed a, a right high kick that dropped the former champ again. And things were really looking bad for Misha Tate. Kedzie followed up. But, again, Tate stayed relaxed. She tied her opponent up. She then transitioned to an arm bar and had the arm in deep. Ketsy was defending, keeping Tate from extending the arm, but Cupkick stayed on it. Reminded me of a spider with a victim caught in its web, just, again, being patient and waiting for the opportunity to come. And Ketsy really fought it, even got out of it for a second, but Tate adjusted, stayed with it, and eventually got the tap. And, I, uh, you know, again, just what a fight. Just super entertaining. I really enjoyed this. Really big win for Misha Tate. Yeah, this was a good fight. It was a good scrap. They were going at each other. The groundwork, the grappling was really a spectacle, kind of back and forth. And just, you could see each fighter really trying hard to to not survive, but to win. And I think that is the difference between a good fight and a great fight, is when you have fighters that are trying to win. And I just think it's cool. I looked this up. Misha had won... Three other fights with an armbar in her career. But it's interesting. She had to find the armbar. She had to become Ronda Rousey 
you know, to get this win here. And, and I thought maybe that made a little bit of a statement. She was trying to make a statement like, hey, you know, I can do that too. And she did it. And man, I just felt so sor- sorry for, for Julie Kedzie. <laughs> like she was so close and it was a life-changing victory if she would have had it. And, and, and she didn't do it. But it's one of those times when I'm just like, oh, it's like the Chael, I call them the Chael Sonnen moments when you're just like, oh, no, how could life be this bad? Like, how could they lose after being so close to winning? Yeah. You know? So that's how I felt. All right. Well, this brings us to the main card at 205 pounds. Oh, Vince St. Preux took on TJ Cook. Cook was 12 and five coming in. He had fought on two challengers cards, splitting them. He was still working his day job on an oil rig. And Mara relayed that he'd recently be going through a tough time emotionally due to a recent breakup with his longtime fiance. It's it sounds like we're like prepping for like a like a dating like like a dating show or something. He's like he spends his days on an oil rig and at night you know, he cries over the loss of his fiance. Like it just yeah, kind of weird. But anyways, uh, he'd lost to Trevor Smith in his last bout, which was really the only name fighter on his record. So to say that Cook was an unheralded uh, underdog would be an understatement. Uh, OSP was eleven and five coming in. He was coming off a decision loss at the hands of Gegard Mousasi. Prior to that, he'd won eight straight, including all five of his strike force bouts. So he was looking to right the ship and get back on track. And this was a really good opportunity for him to de- to do so. Uh, these guys were trading ki- really heavy kicks early on. You could hear the the kicks landing throughout the arena. During one exchange, OSP landed a brutal left hook that hurt Cook badly. Referee Mike Beltran came flying in. I, I don't I don't know that I've seen a ref come as close to stopping a fight without doing so. I mean, he literally like dove in and was right next to the fighter. And uh, but he didn't stop it. Let it go as Cook was recovering. He even blasted OSP with his own punches, and, and so it was clear that he was, you know, he was all right. But later, OSP got Cook in an arm lock, which he was not able to finish. To uh, say what you want about TJ Cook, not the most talented fighter, but the dude was, I mean, all heart. Uh, still, definitely a ten nine round for OSP. Yeah, if Herb Dean were the ref, he definitely oh, yeah. would have stopped yeah, it. Seriously. You know, he was. He's the, the ref in the fight we talked about, you know, earlier, not calling the push kick on the knee. But, yeah, I noticed that, too. Beltran, like, he got in there. I'm like, oh, he's going to stop it. And then he didn't. And it's one of those high-level things where the referee looks good because he didn't stop it. And TJ Cook managed to come back and survive the round and do a little bit of damage. So, I thought that was a good call of course um it's hard to know that as the ref if they're going to make it or not but he did he did a good job but really what i was impressed with tj cook here is you know you're right his body did not suggest that he was the, the you know the top of the class athletically here but he was a fighter like he punched back and he caught osp and he nailed him and he backed him up and that's what this is all about right if you fight back you're going to last longer. And he did that. And that was a really good exchange. And I think he heard OSP, you know, he, he, he almost, I don't say he was close to knocking him out, but he definitely uh, heard him. Yeah. And I thought that was an exciting round because of it. He didn't fold. Right. And that was very admirable. And he let, he let OSP know he had a fight on his hands. So, yeah, but things settled down in the middle, middle frame. OSP showed more patience, got a nice takedown later in the round used it to go for submissions and strikes, which bloodied up Cook uh, in the process. Easily another 10-9 round for OSP. There was a low blow that yeah. I thought was kind of ridiculous. Uh, obviously, you throw the kicks. You don't know where they're going to land. Um, sometimes they land in the wrong spot. But I kind of feel like he knew that was going to be close. And, 
you know, you got TJ Cook, who's already out of shape, who's already been clobbered, who's given everything he can offensively. He survives this big thing, and then he gets kicked right where it counts. Like, that was the end of him. There was no way he was going to come back after that. I thought that was very unfortunate for, for TJ Cook. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it, Cook, I mean, he seemed to be on the downside anyways. Shamrock pointed out that he looked pretty gassed early on in the third round. OSP let him rest almost right away uh, in a true definition of a one-punch knockout. The former Tennessee volunteer star football player landed a left straight punch. It was a, it was a left straight, but it kind of hooked around and it hit right on cook's chin and he was asleep immediately fully at rest osp walked away calmly i mean just brutal and cook they showed him in this kind of low camera angle and his eyes I, he just he was so so out of it uh, i i think this was a, a mismatch in in many ways even though cook showed you know the type of heart that he has but he was out on his back for quite a while it was pretty pretty scary to see I didn't like this fight at all. Um, you know me, I always root for the underdog at this time. And I've never been fully impressed with OSP. Like, I always feel he's sort of a good athlete. Yeah. But not he's really a good a He's a fighter. good athlete, not a great fighter. Yeah, so I'm, I'm never really, like, rooting for the dude. Um, so, yeah, that was a bad knockout. But I thought Cook fought well. He did the best he could. At the end of the day, though, you got to... You got to be ready to go three rounds. You got to be conditioned, especially against, you know, a, a tough athlete like like Ovin St. Proy. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't like the fight, and I don't like the knockout. It was a little too much. It was very me. brutal. It was very brutal. But uh, Ovin St. Pro defeated TJ Cook via KO, come by way of punch at 20 seconds of the third round. Cook would fight one more time in any in MMA five years after this fight, uh, winning to end his career with a 13 and six record. It does beg the question. So he took five years off. In between fights after this, I mean, it, you know, it was a, uh, he had, was in an eight-year relationship that ended, you know, right around this time, and then the the OSP knockout was just too much and needed to take a break. I, you know, I don't know the answer to any of that, but but I want to know what she looked like. <laughs> Shows where your head's at. Uh, <laughs> well, it was obviously a devastating breakup. Well, and, she, what, and what she's got to be just drop dead gorgeous for it to meet to really hurt. Basically, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Is that what you're saying, I, Josh? Is that what you're you saying? Know, I, I just asked the questions, okay? I, I, I'm a broadcast journalist. <laughs> yeah, okay, Bobby the Brain. <laughs> uh, but OS, OSP would move over to the UFC after this bout. That's where he's been. Here we go, 10 years later, ever since. He's uh, gotten some – actually, he joined in 2013, so nine years. But he's gotten some big wins, you know, including show, he beat Shogun Hua, he beat Feijiao, he beat Yoshin Okami, and – Corey Anderson. So he's got some really high quality wins on his record, uh, but still kind of, kind of a middling career record at 25 and 16. So a lot of losses on his record for a guy that's fought at the level he has. All right. This brings us to an 185 pound, uh, excuse me, 185 pound bout between Lumumba Sayers and Anthony Smith. Sayers was six and two at the time. He'd won two of his three strike force fights, including uh, getting choked out by, I'm sorry, <laughs> he'd won two of his three strike force fights, uh, but he had gotten choked out by Derek Brunson before finishing Antoine Britt and Scott Hands of Steel Smith. He had nasty power, which he had showed off in his win over Hands of Steel. And as you and I have discussed, Josh, that was Scott Smith's final fight in strike force. Uh, this was an opportunity for Sayers, who had trained 
trained who trained with UFC pioneer Dan the Beast Severn to really establish himself as a viable contender at middleweight. Uh, the 24-year-old Smith, only 20, only 24 years old, but he was 17 and 8, 25 career fights at only 24, 24 years old. He had lost to Adlan Amagov in Strikeforce the previous November, but had won two straight outside the organization to bring that record to the aforementioned 17 and 8. Despite his record, Smith was still really finding his footing as a fighter at this point. Uh, taking on a slugger like Sayers, who could put your lights out, was a really dangerous choice. All right, big boos for referee Herb Dean when they announced his name before this fight as the crowd remembered his performance at the end of the controversial Amagov Barry fight earlier in the night. Uh, He's lucky there were only 3,500. Yeah, people. yeah, you imagine if it was 20,000 booing him. God, <laughs> he might never have come back. Uh, but Sayers got a nice takedown early on. Smith used his grappling to get full mount. Mara pointed out in commentary that these two had actually met at an Ultimate Fighter Series tryout and had been scheduled to fight each other uh, on more than once in other organizations. Mara said, "I'm not not going to." I think it was either Mara or Pat said, "I'm not going to get into it." But basically, the two had very different stories of when they'd met. I don't know if it they met and they like sparred and and that's how they met and had different versions of what happened or if they literally physically met and it was like hey i don't like you i i I don't know but there was clear it was clear these two didn't hold each other in high regard they didn't like each other so uh but sayers was able to scramble and get smith off of him Uh, but he was cut bleeding pretty badly from a scalp cut uh smith landed a really nice elbow as the two separated and sayers looked tired to me already Uh, truthfully smith just looked like the better fighter i i really think he's just the more talented more well-rounded fighter he definitely had a big reach advantage he was in better shape i i just i just think that i mean if if sayers was really serious about fighting he should have been at 170 pounds he was kind of too flabby to be at 185 in my opinion but uh, and he looked like i said he looked tired already uh smith sort of fell backwards trying to avoid a punch and sayers followed up and this proved to be his undoing as smith got a beautiful very picture perfect triangle choke uh in from the bottom and Sayers didn't even fight it. I mean, he basically he got those long legs wrapped in position and he pulled the head down and Sayers was tapping immediately once his head started getting pulled down. Just a super smooth submission for Lionheart. And uh, and I really liked how he performed in this fight. Is he paying royalties to Chris Jericho? I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think Lionheart. so. But that, no, that's his nickname, Lionheart. So, yeah, it's not still I hadn't Lionheart, even thought about it? Chris Jericho uh, having that nickname, too. That didn't even cross my mind. Shame on me. <laughs> Oh, you don't know your history. And you, you get on me for pride. Come on, okay. All right. So um, it's interesting when I was watching this, you know, you've got uh, OSP in the fight before, and then you've got Anthony Smith, two fighters who fought John Jones for the UFC championship. And I just thought that was interesting to kind of show how good John Jones Man, is. by the way, you kind of freaked me out there because you said, like your note here says, interest, you know, interested to see two guys here who would fight John Jones. I'm like, did Lumumba Sayers get a UFC <laughs> light heavyweight title shot that I'm just not, that I'm just, you say like, man, you're jumping on me about not knowing my history. And I'm like, <laughs> my God, how off it, how off am I? Jeez. So no, I get, I get your point. OSP and, and, and Anthony Smith. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, here we got two guys here in UFC in strike force who would eventually become title contenders in the UFC. Um, this was a totally different Anthony Smith to me. I, I never remembered this fight. I remember him in his UFC. Obviously, he's still competing. Uh, but this Smith was great. Like, he, he was tough. He was agile. He was quick. Uh, he reminded me of Josh Thompson. Something about just his energy and the way he moved in there. Like, he looked like he was ready to fight. Such a different Anthony Smith than the guy 
I've seen in the UFC who's a little bit more methodical. Maybe it's pre-glasses era. I don't know. But uh, this was a good performance by Anthony Smith. And he looked like a superstar, yeah. uh, you know. And obviously, you know, he's, he's, he's done well for himself, uh, for sure. Uh, but this this was a fight like I've never seen out of him before. Yeah, he looked great. He clearly out, outclassed Sayers. I mean, just outclassed him. So uh, great great win for him. Uh, so Anthony Smith defeated Lumumba Sayers via submission, come by way of arm triangle choke at 352. Of the first round, Smith would be back for the final strike force event. He would take on Hodger Gracie. Sayers would fight two more times in his career. Both outside of strike force, never fought for the UFC, lost both of those and left the sport in 2014 with a six and five record. All right, this brings us to a 170 pound bout between Roger Bowling and Tarek Safadine. Safadine was 12 and three coming in. He had won five of his last six fights. After losing via decision to Tyron Woodley, he decisioned Scott Smith and Tyler Stinson. Safadine, not the most exciting fighter, but he was very consistent. Obviously very talented with a win here. Uh, it looked like he would might be in line for a welterweight title uh, title fight. Bowling, 11-2, was talented and athletic. He was 4-2 in strike force with a trilogy of fights with Bobby Volker, which he lost 2-1, to one, which, by the way, answers a question that I've brought up on recent episodes where I just hadn't really done the research and wasn't sure, what, but were there any other trilogies in strike force besides Josh Thompson versus Gilbert Melendez? And this answered the question. I had forgotten about this, which, to be fair, these had all taken place on Challenger's cards so it you know yeah. we don't we didn't cover those on this show in terms of watching them so i i was you know i just had forgotten about it uh but this is a chance for bowling to possibly jump the line maybe get a title shot roger bowling was never a client of mine directly but he was a, a guy from a very small, they called it a village, uh, but a very, very small town in Ohio of a population of around 300. He fought for a promotion called MMA Big Show multiple times, which was kind of his quote unquote home promotion. I worked with MMA Big Show. They were a client of mine when I was doing PR and MMA. So I honestly, I got to know Roger. He's, he's very quiet. Um, yeah, he's just very, very quiet guy. But I got to promote him through uh, his, a few of his events, and I remember when he went over to Strike Force, I was really excited about it because it was, you know, one of my guys, so to speak, going over to, you know, quote unquote, my promotion, my hometown promotion. So uh, I was at the, I, yeah, at this point, I wasn't really, you know, as you and I both were not working for Strike Force anymore at this point, and this is when I, I don't know if I'd left. MMA at this point, but I was definitely, yeah, no, I had, that's right. No, I had, cause I, it was, uh, the beginning of January, 2012 was when I went back into tech PR. So yeah, this is 2012. So I was done with MMA. I was still watching it, but I was not watching strike force at this point. I, it was to me, it was never the same after the, you know, after Zufa bought the promotion. So I wasn't really paying attention. I, all of these last, like 2012, you know, into that last 2013 car, I'd never watched any of these before. Um, yeah. may, I, I'm sure I've seen some of the fights here and there, but I'd never watched them. So, I, but I was stoked that Roger Bowling was in Strike Force because, you know, again, kind of one of my guys. So, Have you ever talked to him about that haircut? No, <laughs> no. If I would have, I would have recommended <laughs> not going the Mo Howard um, direction. <laughs> but, uh, but man, that's about all he had in common with with Mo Howard. I mean, he just he looked like you know decent looking guy, great you know aesthetically great body like he just you know really really cut and just you know one of those guys is just very explosive as an athlete everything he threw he threw it with power 
Uh, Safadine, for his part, more of a technical striker, and we saw this on display early on uh, in the fight. Uh, Safadine seemed to be focused on kind of weathering the early storm, and he was also utilizing the Muay Thai plume effectively, landing knees and keeping Bowling from loading up on those strikes. And Bowling was was doing very little to set up his strikes, which made it easier for Safadine to kind of you know, predict what was coming and defend. Uh, he also seemed to be talking about Bowling using a lot of energy. Close round, but I'd probably give it to Safadine 10-9. Uh, Safadine's technical striking superiority was on display in the second round, scoring good points in the process. Nothing flashy, but he was able to shut Bowling down. He won the round 10-9. Kind of boring, uh, to be honest. I, honestly, I was never really fully engaged with this this bout. It just was not – just never really grabbed my attention. There weren't really any big highlights or anything like that. It just – yeah, but uh, – Bowling sweating heavily heading into the third round. He got cut under his right eye, right eye. And Safadine, he looked fresh as a daisy. And it's more of the same in the final round. Safadine using his technical striking and defense to keep Bowling's power at bay. And Bowling got a kick and uh, caught a kick, excuse me, almost got a takedown. But Safadine was able to keep things on the feet. And later on, Bowling went for a tired takedown, as I'll call it. Safadine was able to turn it into back mount. Bowling was able to withstand, uh, and he made it to the final bell, but but Safadine was, had the choke in. Probably looked a lot better for Safadine in the judge's eyes at the final bell, but close round, close fight, but I gave it to Safadine, and the uh, the judges agreed, uh, giving, uh, to, I believe it was 30-27 across the board. Trek Safadine defeated Roger Bowling via unanimous decision, but uh, Josh, what did you think of the fight? Well, I would have to say I agree with you. Uh, it was a little boring after the first round, there's something about Tarek Safadine that like he's very skilled and you could tell he's a badass and he's really good, but he's really boring also. And uh, Roger Bowling is like, you know, like you said, you know, he's this spectacle. Like he looks amazing. He looks like he's going to go in there and just be incredible. And he usually was in his fights, but not entire fights. And I think in this fight it showed that too much muscle, I think, could hurt you in the world of MMA. And I think he was just too muscular for his own good because he got tired. He got tired and he went from being explosive in the first round to just kind of sluggish and, and just kind of there. And then you got a guy like Safadine who's just more tactical. He is going to win the fight. So, I don't know. Bowling, to me, should be like... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can't help, you know, obviously genetically, he's just like really good shape, but he's a little too big, I think, to be a long-term success in MMA. Yeah, I, and I don't think that he ever trained with a, like a big-time gym. Like, I would have loved to seen a Roger Bowling go to like Extreme Couture or, you know, AKA or, you know, Team Quest, like some really, with the physical tools that he had. You know, I, I think he could have been a really big star. I really do with the look and the story, you know, of coming from, you know, pretty much nothing and, and stuff like that. I, I, you know, he was only 5'9", so I would have liked to have seen him maybe cut down to 100 and, uh, uh, you know, down to maybe 155 if he could, but he would have had to cut a lot of you know, stuff up. I mean, I'm reading up on him as we're talking about this. His father was a drug addict, you know, in and out of jail. And, you know, his his mom did what she could to support, uh, to support the family. But, uh, you know, he sports was really his savior. He was, uh, an amateur boxer undefeated at nine and oh, uh, he was, he started competing and dominating tough man like competitions. And, but yeah, I, I honestly, I would have really liked to have seen him, really go um go to a big time uh you know 
um, gym and, and really, you know, really do well. I would, I, I would have liked to have seen that. And I honestly kind of think that's probably what kept him from going further in the sport. As we record this, he's, he's actually, uh, 39. He's just a few, few months older than I am. So, uh, you know, it, 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 he stopped fighting in 2006, or sorry, 2016. So he was still, you know, that's six years ago now. So he was only 33 or around that age when he stopped. So, but yeah, I would, I would have liked to have seen him, you know, be with a, a bigger gym that could have taken his physical tools and helped him to be a better fighter. So, but Trex Affidine, you know, just overall, I think he was extreme couture if I remember correctly. And just overall, just a, a you know, more well-rounded, more better trained, all that stuff. Uh, but Safadine would be back to take on Nate Marquardt for the welterweight title on the final strike force card. So he would earn a title shot with this win. Bowling would move over to the UFC after this. He would go winless in three bouts. He split two bouts outside the UFC to wrap up his career in 2016 with a 12 and 6 record all right well this brings us to the co-main event jacare souza at 185 pounds takes on Derek brunson jacare was 15 and 3 former strike force middleweight champ as we've mentioned he'd won the vacant title via decision against tim kennedy in 2010 he'd beaten matt linlin and joey via senor to earn that title fight and then after winning the belt he defended it once against robbie lawler before losing it to luke rockhold in his next defense he had rebounded with a submission win over bristol marunde I was now looking to get a big win over Brunson to set up a championship rematch. Brunson, for his part, had actually fought outside this uh, outside of Strike Force two months before this event, getting his first loss via split decision against UFC vet Kendall Grove to bring his record to nine and eleven. Uh, he'd taken that fight on only a week's notice, and many of in attendance felt he'd actually won that fight for whatever that's worth. Uh, prior to that, Brunson, a former three-time All-American wrestler, uh, Division Two All-American wrestler in college, had won all three of his bouts in strike force and I went over a former champion Jacare would go a long way in raising his profile and potentially positioning him as a true middleweight title contender uh, but once we get to it not much to this fight Brunson as you mentioned earlier I don't know that his, Josh I don't know that his uh the, the, the LASIK surgery really, really did much because he got caught with a Jacare counter right hand and dropped uh, pretty early on. The Brazilian landed another shot and with Brunson taking a couple more shots on the ground. The ref stepped in. Brunson didn't like it. Uh, and it looked, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, especially coming off the OSP knockout, it, it just didn't look that clean. Uh, Jacare... Um, was was walking away before the ref even stopped it because in my opinion it was pretty clear Brunson was out and if the if Jacare hadn't have stopped and if the ref hadn't have stopped it it would have just been Jacare punching a guy who was out so uh, he could have done more but the Brazilian knew it was over he and he won he had his first win via knockout Jacare Souza defeated Derek Brunson via KO coming away of punches at 41 seconds of the first round but Josh uh, what did you think about the stoppage I'm, I'm all for it I think it was legit just looked a little funky but what did you think well I, I think it was a little quick I think it was a little soon obviously I also agree that I don't see Brunson turning things around. I don't know that he, how he would have got out of that position, but you never know, and we've seen it happen. I think it was just an awkward fall, and I, I think it, Derek looked more hurt than he was, and as soon as they stopped it, he seemed fine. So six of one, half a dozen of the other. It was early. I also think had they let it go, Brunson probably would have been knocked out 10 seconds later. But in those 10 seconds, that's where athletes and heroes are made. You just don't know what he might have been able to do. Yeah, I, I guess. But I, to me, like I said, I, I think he was out. I, I and But the, I will caveat that with 
the closest thing I could think of would be the Ken Shamrock flash knockouts, which he had more than once. He had one of those happened oh. in Pride, and then there's the one the one with Tito, their third fight, where it was clear he was getting pounded and getting and he was out and getting pounded. But as soon as the ref stopped it, he was up on his feet, going, "What? What happened?" That those flash knockouts. You know, it's not the fighter's fault. Like it just their brain shuts off temporarily, and you know they're it, they're done. But but then they just for whatever reason, someone have a switch, it goes right back on, and they're on their feet. That's what I thought it was in retrospect. Was Brunson like kind of suffering this flash knockout? But I think it was legit. I don't think there really is any controversy to it. And uh, Jacare, man, not really, you know, not remembered as one of the all-time greats at middleweight. But I mean, the guy really, like, legit was really, really good, and obviously one of the best jujitsu players in middleweight history. And then on top of that, he did have a lot of power. He worked on his striking, training with the Noguera brothers and Anderson Silva and Fejia. I mean, it was clear that he, you know, he really worked on his striking. You could see it progress during his strike force career and really one of the one of the greatest fighters in strike force history for sure. So, uh, but sp- despite getting the dominant win here, Jacare would not get a title shot. Instead, he would take on UFC fighter Ed Herman on the final strike force ca- card, which by the way, a little footnote, was the only time uh, in strike force history that a contracted UFC fighter would compete inside the hexagon. Uh, this would be it. For Strike Force, uh, I'm sorry for Brunson and Strike Force, as he would move over to the UFC after this, uh, which is where he's been ever since. Similar to uh, um, uh, OSP, uh, and said that the Octagon Brunson has beaten fighters such as Lorenz Larkin, fellow Strike Force vet, uh, Uriah Hall, Leota Machida, and Darren Till. Currently holds a, a record of 23 and eight, so not a not a world champion, but definitely a, a very good fighter. But uh, yeah, that, that that was it for this fight. How did he beat Leo Leota Machida? Uh, he actually finished him. So yeah, wow. yeah. Let, this was to be the end of the career. I, I would, I, I, I would think so. But, but yeah, yeah, I mean, he got a, he did get a win that no one can ever take away from him for sure. So, uh-huh. all, right. all right. Well, this takes us to the main event. Uh, we, uh, we're going to see Ronda Rousey take on Sarah Kaufman with the Strikeforce Women's Bantamweight title on the line. Again, Rousey undefeated at 5-0 and with five armbar submissions at this point. She was simply a force of nature. She had appeared on Conan in promotion of this fight, and Showtime had put together an all-access special around her. She had also appeared on the cover of ESPN's Body Issue, so she was really making the rounds and really starting to build her profile as a legitimate star. Uh, she had also upped the hype by saying at the official pre-fight press conference, quote, if I get her, talking about Kaufman, in a choke, I'm going to hold it until she actually until she's actually dead so as much respect as she had for Kaufman um, she was planning to kill her apparently so well hey I mean Mike Tyson said worse things he was going to eat his opponent's children Phil I have to stop you here because I just remembered did you see in between I think it was in between the main event and the co-main event they went to this long shot of Misha Tate eating the ice cream cone did you see this? Well, she wasn't in an ice cream cone. She had it was a cupcake. Yeah, she's because that was that. So she had. We'll give a okay. little, little. We'll give a little con. A little context here. Um, her, uh, her t- Misha's. E- I'm sorry, Misha. I'm trying to say five different things at once. Misha's nickname had been takedown take because she was a you know a wrestler in fact i have her email from that time i reached out to her try to get her on the show never heard back uh, but her email was takedown take or you know some sort of variation of that well they i think Mara mentioned it on this that she had transitioned her nickname to cupcake which doesn't make sense why would a fighter have a nickname like cupcake i i do not get that at all 
But yeah, they showed her kind of sultry in a sultry manner, kind of eating a cupcake on camera with her hair hanging down in her face, which I think was covering up her uh, her swelling. Her left cheek was pretty swollen from the fight with Kedzie, and one of the commentators pointed out. But yeah, it wasn't an ice cream; it was a cupcake, and I think it was a like kind of like a symbolistic thing, <laughs> you know? Okay, well, whatever it was, it was in my mind entirely inappropriate for an <laughs> MMA show. Who did we have to look at? Was it Luke Rockhold's mom or yeah? Uh, no, 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 no. It was uh, uh, Tyron's. Or... It was Tyron's mom. That we had to, that we saw multiple times on camera, and then later we saw DC's fiance a bunch of times. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I don't know who was directing these shows, but I just thought, like, you know, if you're gonna put Misha Tate on the main card, you could have put the fight on the card. And here she is with her hair. It's just one of those things you just don't see. You would never do that with an, a man in that position, you know, in a comparable aesthetic situation. Uh, but I just thought that was really annoying. I just thought it was like, I don't need to see that. Um, it's clearly double standard here. You know, with the day you show me Luke Rockhold eating a cupcake <laughs> right before, you know, someone's going to fight, then I'll say, okay, it's fair. Okay. But fair I enough. Thought it wasn't. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, all right. But Kaufman for her part, former strike force women's bantamweight champion in her own right. She was 15 and one coming into this one. She'd beaten Japanese fighter Takeo Hashi to win the vacant title and then defended it with a slam knockout win over Roxanne Modafferi before getting submitted by Marluz Kuna to lose her belt. And since then, she'd won three straight, including two in Strike Force over Alexis Davis and Liz Carmouche, respectively, to earn this title shot against Rousey. She'd actually been in line uh, to take on Misha Tate in a rematch for the belt, but had been passed over because of Ronda's star power. But now she was getting a chance at Rowdy herself. She was one of the most accomplished female fighters uh, in the world at the time. She had wins over the aforementioned Carmouche and Modafferi, plus Alexa Davis. Davis, Misha Tate, and Shayna Baszler. So she definitely had the goods and the credibility to be in there, but it wouldn't matter. <laughs> Rousey came out swinging quickly, almost immediately transitioned to grappling. She got a takedown and went for the armbar. Kaufman did a good job de of defending for a while, but R Rousey just so amazing on the ground, just staying poised and calm and making adjustments. She kept adjusting and adjusting before she finally got the right extension and elicited the tap from the bottom. And another quick, dominant victory for Ronda Rousey. I mean, what can you say besides wow? Yeah, it was incredible. She came out so confident. She was just on fire. And she took care of Kaufman like a hot knife through butter. It was like... I'm going to win. This fight's over. It was so clear that that was where it was going to end. She just had a lot of confidence. And I don't think she felt Kaufman could hurt her. I don't think she felt Kaufman was a danger to her at all. And when you have that kind of confidence, it's really hard to lose. And she definitely, she had it here. I love the post-fight interview where she called out uh, Cyborg. Uh, what did you say she called she her? She called her Cyroid. Instead of, instead of stero you know, steroid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, she's lucky Cy Cyborg didn't drop to 135 because I think, you know, a lot of stuff would have been different, even though I would say Rob is 100 times better MMA athlete than Cyborg, but Cyborg's just bigger. Um, I don't want to say too much about Ronda. It's the last time I guess we're going to talk about her, but I think she retired too early. I mean, we saw Amanda Nunez look like crap in the UFC um, against what Juliana Pena. Juliana Pena is not one of the top net echelon of MMA female fighters. Everybody loses. It takes time. I think Ronda still has got a fight in her. 
if nothing else, Misha Tate. I mean, that fight would make a bazillion dollars. But um, I, I thought Ronda was just just amazing, unreal. That little promo she cut afterward was 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 gold, and she showed a lot of respect to Sarah Kaufman, even yeah. if she had that dumb line about wanting to wanting to kill her. But yeah, so yeah, I mean that's the best. This is Ronda era. It was such a great era. Yeah, I, I just. I wish she would have kept. Going, I wish but... it would have been longer. I wish we would have seen, yeah. you know, the timing wise, it would have been great to see Ronda in Strike Force longer and really establish herself as the star of the promotion. I, it was an area where it was a differentiator for the promotion versus the UFC because obviously Dana White wasn't going to do that. So I, I feel like if Ronda had come along earlier, uh, you know, she could have been an even bigger star with Strike Force and maybe would have carried the promotion. I mean, I, I don't think one person can in MMA, but. Yeah, it, she really was just, I, you know, again, she's definitely a Mount Rushmore for, for women's fighters. I mean, uh, you know, uh, or women fighters, she, she's definitely a Mount Rushmore. If she's not the greatest, she's top three. You know, I, I, I think she's amazing. So, yeah, not my favorite person. Ain't nobody, but, but, nobody in 10 years is going to know who Amanda Nunez is. Probably not. No, Ronda Rousey forever. I, yeah, so. I mean, that's debatable, but, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, but when they showed the replay, both Scott Coker and Dana White were front and center at cage side with a real perfect view. I, I, I have to wonder if that moment was that's the no, mo, moment when Dana knew Ronda would be the woman to usher, you know, in female MMA into the UFC. But uh, just, yeah, just just a great moment for, for, uh, for Ronda Rousey and for women's MMA overall. But the official result, Ronda Rousey defeated Sarah Kaufman via submission, come by way of armbar at 54 seconds of the first round to f- defend her strike force women's bantamweight title. Rousey, of course, would move over to the UFC after this and be awarded the promotion's first UFC women's title, which I'm sorry, I can't help but think of Triple H getting awarded the big gold belt back in like 2002 or 2003, whatever that was for his... <laughs> his heel run when they was awarded the belt and they made a big deal out of that. Like as a heel, you get awarded the belt rather than win the belt. You know what I'm saying? And and I got to say, I don't like that. They awarded her the belt. I think they should have done a tournament that Ronda would have won, but I think it would have made, I, I, if I was Ronda and I had a say in it, I'd be like, nah, I don't want to, I don't want the belt. I want to, you know, I want to have a tournament. I want to win it legitimately. Um, I will say, you know, she obviously held the the Strike Force Women's title. So if you're just saying, hey, this is just the continuation, the you know the 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 lineal version of that belt, then okay. But you know, to her credit, it's not something Ronda had said before this fight that she's like. I, she didn't want the belt with her on the podium at the pre-fight press conference because she said in the judo world, you know, you it, it's when you win a world championship, this is where it differs with boxing and, and MMA and, and, you know, pro wrestling. Like when you win you in the title, you keep that title until you lose, right? In, in like in legitimate amateur sports like judo and wrestling, you, you know, if you win the gold medal, you don't wear that gold medal to the next competition, right? Like you take it home, put it on your wall. And now it's time to go back to work and you got to win another medal. That's, that's how Rhonda considered it with the title belt was that, you know, I won that belt and that belt's, you know, basically home on my wall. I now the title's back up for, you know, I got to win another belt basically. So, um, 
But regardless, she was awarded, became the promotion's first UFC women's uh, champion. Uh, we would never get to see her in Cyborg Tangle due to those weight class differences that we've discussed. But Rousey would defend her Bantamweight belt six times inside the octagon before losing her last two fights. Uh, Holly Holm beat her for the belt. And then Amanda Nunez ended her career to bring her final MMA tally to 12-2. and two. Uh, Despite her losses, R- Rousey really is the most dominant champion in women's MMA history and, and one of the most dominant champions of either gender. Uh, now back with the WWE Rousey's a true crossover star one of the biggest names in all of combat sports for sure and she's getting cheered again so we should yeah yeah and I'm sure she's happy about that too but uh, (laughs) anyways Uh, but things were also shaping up for women to enter the UFC soon as Dana's feelings towards the women's MMA were rapidly changing after this event he said quote I don't think I've been too shy about what I think about Ronda Rousey and not only did she look impressive on Saturday night but her numbers killed it on Showtime too Ronda Rousey is a star I don't know how many of you have Showtime Extreme, but the fight with Misha Tate was awesome. Uh, Inserting here, that's talking about the Tate-Kedzie fight. And I am warming up to women's MMA. So it was clear that things were looking up for 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 women in in the UFC. Uh, and, you know, Ronda, of course, would move over to the UFC after this, and along with a score of other ladies, which changed the course of MMA history. Uh, Kaufman, for her part, would move over to Invicta after this and has competed in the UFC and the PFL, amongst other organizations, still competing today and competing today and holds an impressive 22 and five record. And I, I got to say, Kaufman, to me, she's one of the most unlucky MMA fighters in history. She gets passed over for a title shot in strike force despite clearly deserving it she gets robbed of of a chance to become a two-time champ there then she's supposed to fight former olympic medalist sarah mccann uh current wwe star shanna baszler who she had beaten before and then uh one of the greats in amanda nunez all in the ufc but there were withdrawals and injuries that scuttled all three of those fights she's had opponents miss weight and pull out from fights due to travel issues in fact her most recent bout that was scheduled was was canceled because of of opponents travel issues so despite all her success, uh, Kaufman just doesn't get the respect that she deserves for her longevity, for her wins. And I mean, I don't know what else to point it to other than luck, but it, it's, she's really is one of the greatest women's fighters of all times, but just maybe it's due to her quiet attitude. The fact that she's, you know, not, uh, maybe, maybe as aesthetically attractive as, as some of the other ladies, uh, you know, that's a, obviously beauties in the eye of the beholder, but uh, you know, I, I can't point to any one specific thing. It just luck seems to make the most sense why she's not viewed as uh, uh, as as she should be with as much respect as she should be. She's like the Cesaro of uh, yeah. M- the MMA world. Yeah, that's a, that's a good know? way of putting it. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the only thing I could think of is she could have cut a better promo. She's not a great promo. Who- she's really not. Yeah. Those, you know, the humble Canadian persona doesn't sell fights. Yeah, not here in America. uh, That's not how we are. (laughs) Yeah, so she could have at least become like Bret Hart or something, you know, and started talking crap about Americans. I mean, she did say she was looking forward to taking the belt back to Canada, but she could have really amped that up and really gone farther with it. She could have been like, I'm going to take this belt back to Canada where we have universal health care. We don't shoot each we other on every our, street we corner. We treat our elderly. Yeah. <laughs> just cut the whole, just copy and paste the whole Bret Hart, you know, USA versus Canada promo from 97. Hey, I have the whole thing memorized. It's one of the greatest things he ever in Yes, because there was a lot started. of truth to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, I just think she could have cut a better promo. And I mean, 
I'm going to leave the whole aesthetic thing out of it. But what I will say is that um, Sarah Kaufman, there's athletes and there's MMA fighters. And obviously when you put both, you get a John Jones. Sarah Kaufman was like not the greatest athlete in the world. No. And I, and no. I, so I, I, I see why she lost the big fights because she didn't have levels. She was always just like good, but you got to be great and adjust when you take on the big fighters. And, uh, but she has longevity and, you know, maybe, you know, you're talking about Roger Bowling being in a camp. Maybe Sarah Kaufman should have been around other people too. And she'd have a whole different story. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mentioned all these fights that had been kind of taken away from her, but she beat Misha Tate, you know, she beat, She'd already beaten Shayna Baszler. She's only 36 years old, by the way. She's only 36. She made her debut all the way back in 2006. So, I mean, she's, you know, at, so 2006, that would have made her 21. You know, she's been fighting all this time. She's only got five losses on her record. I, I, I just, she really is one of the greats. But to your point, you know, who knows? Maybe she would have been better if she had, yeah, done better. I mean, she's with now. She was with Jackson's MMA, so she is with uh-huh. one of the best gyms out there. Greg Jackson was in her corner, so you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's tough to say that she didn't do as much as she should. She should, have. She should be walking around with the Becky Lynch glasses and the strut, calling herself the. Linear, I, yeah, I just don't think she. Heavy, she did the linear, the linear bantamweight champion because yeah. she beat Misha Tate. Who was beaten by Ronda yeah, Rousey? You know, I mean, something yeah. like that. I mean, she held the Invicta bantamweight title, which that's a big that's a big title in women's MMA. So, you know, she's she's got legit wins. I mean, Leslie Smith, she beat her twice. She beat Alexis Davis, Carmouche, Megumi Yabashita, which was a, a a pioneer. I believe she's a pioneer in women's MMA. Um, she's got some big big wins on her, you know, on her record, but. Um, yeah, Roxanne. Yeah, she needs Paul Heyman. She she she, Heyman. she that's all she needs. She would, yeah, there you go. There you go. That's it. We just solved it right there. So uh <laughs> so she's one of the greats, but but there's just yeah, I agree with you about levels, you know. So but let's uh we're we're running long here, so let's wrap things up. No fighters tested positive for performance answers or recreational drugs, but there was some controversy here because the CSAC California State Athletic Commission announced that the test results initially were deemed invalid. However, that was apparently due to a clerical error. It was quickly corrected. So the results were fine, but only Ronda, Ronda Rousey and Sarah Kaufman were tested. So I don't, huh. I don't even know why you're bothered doing testing if you're only fighting or if you're only testing two fighters on a card like this. So that makes no sense. But anyways, it, it, honestly, it makes me wonder about the validity of, you know, did they te- did they test other fighters and you know something happened? It just it opens up all kinds of questions. But other than cyborg, have we ever had an issue with women's MMA fighters popping? Uh, that's a good question. None comes to mind. Um, but that doesn't mean that that has not happened. Uh, I have a a um, uh, a spreadsheet that I found that's where someone keeps track of uh, of of all the drug tests the drug test failures in MMA history. So I'm kind of as you were saying that, I, I kind of quickly looked it up. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, Ken Shamrock's on here more than once. <laughs> so is Josh Barnett. Uh, Kenny. LeVar Johnson, Ben Rothwell, Bigfoot Silva, Alistair Overeem's on here more than once. Yeah, Crow uh, Cop, unfortunately, is on here. Junior Dos Santos, Brock Lesnar's on here more than once. Anderson Silva. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. John Jones. Yeah. Well, they're, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm just Kimbo Slice, Tim Sylvia. 
chemo like all the way back in the day, a long time ago. Uh, Vitor, Stefan Bonner, Tiago Silva. Yep, John Jones, uh, King Mo, as we've talked about on this show. Robert Drysdale uh, popped twice. He's a jujitsu guy. That's kind of it's kind of weird. John Jones again. Uh, Joey Beltran, Josh Berkman, Fajal, James Irvin. Oh, there's John Jones again. Uh, For <laughs> Forrest Griffin. Pat Healy actually popped at one point. Wow, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have thought. Wouldn't have thought that. Melvin Gallard on here a couple times. Glayson Tebow on here a couple times. Sean Shirk. Remember Sean Shirk? Man. Uh, but yeah, I'm not. I, I mean, again, I'm scrolling through, so I'm not. I'm not. Uh, yeah, this isn't a 100. I'm not really. I'm not seeing any any ladies on here. So. And you know who else you don't see there, Phil? Who's that? You, Luke. Rock, so. <laughs> oh no i found one i got one jessica i jessica i oh. popped at a ufc event in 2013 and karina dom ashley oh, smith cool. evans at a ufc event amanda lemos yeah yeah another ufc fighter so yeah there's actually several here that i just just happened to come upon uh andrea lee Again, we mentioned Cyborg. She's on here twice because she popped when she was out of competition uh, in the UFC. So Jessica Penn, Amanda Rebus. Yeah, there's a bunch on here. So, yeah, yeah, there's definitely been people. Um, this does not have 2021 on here unless nobody tested positive in 2021. So this hasn't been updated in a while. So, yeah, so to be fair, yes, there have been other women besides Cyborg. All right, total total disclosed fighter payroll of $368,000. Again, as we mentioned earlier, the gate was $145,000 plus. So big-time losses here. Uh, that doesn't include, you know, what Strikeforce was getting from Showtime, but just never a good look when you're uh, spending more on the fighters than you're taking in at the event. Ronda Rousey got 40000 Sarah Kaufman got seventeen. Jacques Ray got 94000 Derek Brunson only got thirteen. Trek Safanine got thirty five. Roger Bowling got 10. Anthony Smith got six, only 6,000. Wow. Uh, Lumumba Sayers got seven, so he actually got more. Ovin St. Pru got 34. TJ Cook only three grand. Misha Tate got 38,000. And Julie Kedzie got 5,000. But pretty entertaining event. I felt like the Safadine Bowling fight was entirely skippable, was not one that I was really a fan of. The OSP KO was brutal. Jacques Ray's finish was also great. And of course, Ronda put on a show in the main event. But great card, Josh. Uh, what, what did you think? Well, I wondered why it was in San Diego. That was something I wondered. Uh, not a stronghold for Strike Force. It goes to my whole theory that Dana White was trying to put these cards in places that he knew wouldn't do well. Um, I thought it was a good show. Anytime you see Ronda at that time, she is emerging as the talk of the MMA world. And she's about to become the biggest star in the sport. And if you're watching Strike Force at this time, you feel like you knew her from the beginning. So this is part of that narrative, part of her story. And she's just super dominant with that arm bar. And we've never really seen anything like that. So I thought it was a good show. There's some other, you know, stuff on the card. Some good, you know, we had obviously a tremendous knockout. But Ronda Rousey's the show. She, you know, Ronda Mania is about to start running wild. It's like, you know, she's about to jump from the AWA to the WWF. <laughs> and, you know, it's about to go big. So, I, for that reason, I think it's a very memorable show. And I could have done without Misha and her cupcake <laughs> be the one <laughs> negative thing that you'll remember besides osp's brutal knockout 
Yes. All right. Well, that wraps things up. Uh, we're finally down to our final, th- our last three episodes of Inside the Hexcon. After this one, we've got three more left. Next week, we'll be covering Strike Force Marquardt versus Safadine, the final event in the promotions of history. We will also discuss the two Strike Force events that got canceled prior to that event, as well as the final card itself, which featured names such as Hodger Gracie, Tim Kennedy, Ryan Couture, Jacare, Gegard Musassi, Josh Barnett, Daniel Cormier, and of course, Nate Marquardt and Tarek Safadine. After that, you'll hear my interview with Ryan Couture, we're in the middle of scheduling that, uh, but he's going to discuss his run with Strike Force, including competing on that final Strike Force event. What was it like going to that, knowing, uh, you know, knowing that that was going to be it? Did you know you were going to go over to the UFC? We're going to talk about all that, and then after that, Josh and I will wrap things up on the final episode. We're still kind of working on the format uh, for that, but it'll be fun. We're, we're going to have a good time with it, and we're going to do our best to honor Strike Force in, in a fitting manner. And you know, what was a, a very, very important MMA promotion. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy, and we will see you soon. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.